This is episode 225 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Enlightened with Dan Stalkup. This episode is part one of a two-part series about the show Enlightened. So tune in next week for the second part. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, I am really delighted to welcome a returning guest to the show. Dan Stalkup is with us today. He was on the show before when we were talking about Adam Schlesinger uh, after he passed away. And Dan is an IT person by profession. And I found him because I was rooting around for someone to talk about that topic. And I came across an article he had written on his website called earnthis.net. And he has since launched a podcast, which I'm curious to hear about. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be back. So tell us about the podcast. Sure. So uh, I started a podcast with one of my fellow writers from EarnThis.net. It's a movie reviews podcast called The Goods. And there are a couple podcasts called that if you're searching networks. So we're The Goods, a film podcast. Okay. Each week we pick a movie, usually a little bit older movie, not one that's just come out. And it's somewhere in the spectrum of forgotten and beloved. You know, we've kind of tried to hit Mm. a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. We discuss one movie per week, kind of talk through it, what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it. And then we answer the question, is it good at the end of the episode? All right. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and our website is thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. So if you like movie talk, come join us. Yeah, excellent. So we're not going to talk about movies today, but we are going to talk about a TV series called Enlightened. And I'll just talk a little bit about it at the beginning here as an introduction. It's a comedy drama from HBO. It has two seasons. The first one ran in 2011, and then the second one came out in 2013. They were all written by Mike White, every single word. And so they the series had an advantage in that Everything was written ahead of time, and so they could do all of the filming at once. The only wrinkle that they had was at some point HBO came back and said, okay, now cut it by two episodes. I sometimes wonder if they do stuff like that just to like test the writer to see how quick they are on their feet. But anyway, Mike has talked in some of the uh, little videos at the end of each episode about each episode, and he has commented about that, about having to cut out two episodes, and kind of what that, uh, what the, what the challenge was for that. So Mike White also plays a pretty big character on the show, a coworker of the star, and the star Amy Jellicoe is played by Laura Dern, 
And her mom is also on the show, her real life mom who plays her mother, uh, Diane Ladd. And her ex is played, is sort of her ex, but also still her friend, but kind of her frenemy, uh, Levi, is played by Luke Wilson, of all people. Her former assistant at the company that she had worked at, uh, Krista, is played by Sarah Burns. And one of the standouts for me in the show, and I'll be curious to hear what you think, is her boss, Dougie is played by somebody named Tim Sharp. I'd never heard of him before. Uh, for me personally, he's the one who gets the big laughs. That's the one where I'll just bust out laughing as something that that he says. Yeah, I actually uh, encountered Tim Sharp before Enlightened. You know, Judd Apatow, he's a film producer, and he was uh, been a huge voice in film comedy for the past 20 or so years. Um, and he kind of shifted comedy away from more broad to more kind of introspective, particularly like from a men's perspective, kind of figuring out the world. And you probably know a lot of his movies, uh, Knocked Up, 40-Year-Old Virgin, but he got his breakthrough when he led two TV shows. So one of them was Freaks and Geeks, which was a high school show. And the other one was called Undeclared. It was a college comedy for TV. And this was probably early 2000s. And so Tim Sharp at that point looked like a college student and he played one of the leads in that show. So this was actually my second kind of under the radar comedy that I had encountered Tim Sharp in. But I agree, he, he gets a lot of the laughs, especially in the second season as things are starting to derail for him. Yeah, yeah, especially. Yeah, his evolution in the show is interesting. Okay, so let me tell you the story of the show. Amy, the character played by Laura Dern, uh, what worked as a buyer in health and beauty for this huge corporation called Abaddon in Riverside. And she'd worked there for 15 years, pretty much her whole working life. It's this kind of, yeah, sort of glamorous, but also sort of horrible campus in Riverside. And uh, we can see in a flashback that she had had an affair with her boss and was demoted to cleaning supplies, which she had a vociferous reaction to and kind of had a meltdown at work and then went off to rehab, this holistic kind of woo place in Hawaii called Open Air. And the series opens then with her return to Riverside, full of inspiration and all this uh, self-help language going on in her head and she's all ready to be good with the world and take her job back uh, but things have changed she meets with hr and they first indicate that there's no job for her at all that her previous job has been given away the buyer in beauty and then also the job in cleaning supplies has been given away. And it looks like she's going to be out on her ear when she's sort of in this kind of doofus way implies that she might have grounds for a lawsuit. And then suddenly they have a job for her. They stick her in the basement, which is on level H, working on Cogentiva, which is this productivity analysis software and so she's down in the basement. Uh, basically, the job is doing data entry, and uh, she describes it as the place with computers, faxes, and freaks. As we do this podcast, I'm sure we'll do a bunch of spoilers, 
Um, but please do watch the show. I really would recommend it. And that's my first question for you, Dan. Would you recommend this show? I would. I think it's not for everyone. I think Laura Dern's character, Amy Jellico, presents such an kind of aggressive approach to everything that she's doing that it's it's almost like a, a thriller. There's like tension because you know she's going to push buttons. You know it's... <laughs> going to make you cringe a little bit so if you're sensitive to the cringe comedies then this might be a tough 14 or 18 episodes to get through but i would say it is very much worth it i overall uh to everyone recommend it i mean this is in my top 10 or 20 favorite tv shows of all time for sure oh interesting yeah i guess i don't keep a list like that but i will say since i rewatched everything recently i really enjoyed it on the rewatch i'm a little touchy about the cringe thing and the uh, there are a couple of scenes the very beginning where she forces open the doors of the elevator to confront her boss is just like, oh, especially like me, you know, I've had a, many years of working in the corporate world. So those scenes really get under my skin. But, you know, there's a lot of sort of interior monologue where you get to see inside people's heads. And that really softens the cringe thing for me is you really... It's not just people being assholes or or idiots. You kind of get to understand why. It's so it's a really sympathetic show in a way. Completely agree. It spends much of the 18 episodes with only a few exceptions entirely from Laura Dern's perspective and you really get to see kind of some of the nuance and contradictions and just challenges and messiness of her life you really start to see that some of these actions that come across as I use the word aggressive, uncomfortable to watch maybe are really rooted in deep personal challenges that are also like round and universal enough that it's, it just makes for very relatable, thoughtful, almost philosophical watching as you see her encounter this modern corporate life and, and all her baggage and all, all the things that she wants to do to this world. Yeah, let's talk about her being an agent of change. So when she first comes in, of course, like a freaking hurricane, she plows into level H and Mike White has been assigned to help her orientate her, as Dougie says. And she she says to Mike, you know, because she's all filled to the brim with all this stuff from Hawaii. And she says, you know, I can change this place that, you know, this place is is bad. And she says, I can be an agent of change. And so what do you think about her attempts to be an agent of change inside this huge corporation? I would say that um, her being an agent of change is kind of the central theme of the show and looking at it from all angles of, you know, what is the cost? What does it mean to do it? What is good does it actually bring about is kind of the core thing that this show is probing in addition to just being a great character portrait. But I think the show does a great job of taking her desire to be an agent of change and looking at the costs of it and, and the challenges of it. So for example, she dreams of this world where the, the little people get justice, 
they the the big people of the world get toppled and then we see in you know just the first couple of episodes she's so dismissive and rude to her co-workers the, at the new shop at, at Cogentiva and that's just one example of her maybe not having a full picture like a full self-awareness of uh, what exactly it means to to actually live out these things. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I was really struck, like she goes and has has lunch with her former assistant, Krista. Poor Krista. She's, <laughs> everything happens to Krista in this show. And Krista is obviously pregnant. And Amy just doesn't even notice until it's at the end of the lunch where Krista says, you know, oh yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm pregnant. And I was thinking, God, Amy, you're, you're clueless, right? You didn't even observe that this person, but she's so self-absorbed, you know, she just can't. And so you, you raise this question about, well, what's the difference between an, an agent of change and a creator of chaos? And I was thinking, yeah, part of the problem is you have to at least be, have some self-awareness and some observational skills in order to be an effective agent of change. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. She, that, that line, am I an agent of change or a creator of chaos? Or it's something along those lines that comes from later in the show when we're seeing that she's basically on the verge of being this uh, whistleblower for this, this huge, I think they're a drug company or perhaps a drug store company. I and think they're a multi-conglomerate. Yeah, I, I see. sort yeah. of thought of like Procter & Campbell. It seemed maybe sort of like that. Yeah, household goods. Um, but also they do have some kind of natural drugs or homeopathic type drugs. They seem to be have their fingers in a lot of things. Yeah, and that that line, again, agent of change versus creator of chaos applies specifically to that, but it definitely carries through in everything she does in the show. I mean, you look at her relationship with her ex-husband, who she still kind of has this connection with. We end up learning a little bit more about their backstory and what's sort of some of the stress and trauma that ended up driving them apart and driving him into substance abuse. And she constantly is, you know, trying to reconnect with him, trying to save him. Mm -hmm. And as she's doing so, it's just making him more and more upset and miserable. And it's bringing up bad blood between him and her mom. Oh, yeah. It's one of these things where her intentions are pure. And the way that she sees herself in this narrative is as an, solely an agent of change that is positive. But for every action, there's an equal and opposite counteraction. And in this case, that is the chaos and the mess of, in some cases, casualties and, and challenges that, that go behind it. And for basically every issue this show looks at, it, it takes time to think about, you know, what are both sides of whatever coin they're looking at that week. Mm-hmm. That's yes. The, we were, we, I wanted to talk about her friend, Sandy, who she got to know in Hawaii, who's also filled with all this, you know, woo kind of talk and, and spirituality. And she comes to visit Amy in Riverside and it, really gives us a window into what it was like in Hawaii, but also kind of what Amy aspires to. And this idea of two sides of a coin is so apropos for her. I should mention she's played by Robin Wright, 
who I didn't know who that was the first time I saw the TV series. So I was so surprised when I watched it the second time. It's like, oh my God, it's Robin Bright. Who's, you know, famous for House of Cards, plays a very different character here, kind of a yeah, a new age hippie kind of person. And I think I, I think this was one of her last gigs before House of Cards. Oh, and God. Robin Wright, her breakout was uh on The Princess Bride. She played, I forget the main character's name, but the the princess in that. Gotcha. You know, Amy is so self-absorbed. And so she's so worried about what, what Sandy, her friend thinks of her. So she's trying to eavesdrop on her and she tries to get a peek into her diary. And then we, as the audience begin to understand through that episode and particularly at the very end of that episode. And I won't spoil that scene just because, yeah, the audience should enjoy that on their own. We get to see that Sandy is not thinking about Amy at all. Sandy is very interested in Sandy. And <laughs> it's such a, you know, so eye-opening for the audience to get that that two sides of the coin, that different perspective. One thing that that episode, which I really like, uh, leaves ambiguous is whether Amy sees Sandy how much self-awareness she gets out of that because a lot of what Sandy does is kind of a reflection of some of the things that Amy has been doing to the people around her. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think of that about that. That's true. Yeah. The sort of taking over of things, taking over the kitchen, maybe taking over somebody's romantic life. It's like what? <laughs> Coming in like a whirlwind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Disrupting things very much. But also, like, it's she's not a, a cruel or bad person at all. Like, nope. she's making legitimate connection and really trying to find good in this world. And she talks about how she was like a government bureaucrat and she had to leave that because it was breaking her down because of how soul sucking it was. And and she went to open air and now she feels so much more connected with the world and inspired to make a, a good change. So it's another example of like nuance, how it's you get both sides of it. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned in your notes about the show, and this is that gets into kind of the, I don't know, the heartwarming or sort of the heart rending part of the show is why these people feel so driven to find a way to fill something that's missing in their lives, whether it's purpose or whether or not they have to escape through drugs or romance and you know, in the case, especially of Mike White's character, he's so lonely. And it, it's really, I don't know, I just find it really touching that that's so obvious in the show that people have holes. And it just makes you think about people around us, right? How many people there are around us who do feel as though there's something missing in their lives. Absolutely. There's a constant probing of Amy particularly, but all the characters and and this notion that what's missing, Mm -hmm. everybody has something that they're missing that they think that they need to fill. And for Amy, she kind of spends the first season kind of circling around all these different things. She knows she wants to be an agent of positive change and she kind of goes this way and that way. And the second season kind of coalesces around a narrative of a way for her to do that which is, and you said you don't mind if we do spoilers here. So uh, (laughs) she um, essentially uh, with the help of her coworker, Tyler hacks into some 
executive emails that she then turns over to a reporter and does this big expose on unethical and illegal practices um, at Abaddon. But she's not the only one with, you know, a hole. For, for her, it, the, it's the way that she wants to fill it is with this new mission, mm-hmm. this new way to be an agent of change. But as you said, Tyler is very much, there's a hole. And in fact, one of my favorite episodes is, is towards the end of the second season. It's called The Ghost is Seen. Mm-hmm. And we, this is an episode we get more from Tyler's perspective than from Amy's perspective. And he gets an opening and closing internal monologue. And he talks about at the beginning how being a ghost, just kind of floating and having this, this big emptiness in his life and how he's kind of adjusted to that mm-hmm. gives him a certain sense of safety. There's no burden. There's no, no risk of things you could lose or yeah. being sad about something happening to a cause or a person that you love. And then towards the end of the episode, he he's the ghost is seen. So he strikes up this connection with um, another character, the, the assistant to the CEO. And for the first time in a long time is, is feeling something. And while that could be a, I don't know, maybe a less thoughtful show that could just be a, a simple pull of the heartstrings that we're happy that this lonely character has a connection. The show reminds us that there's, there is a cost to it. And now if he's going to care about this other person, then it's, it's has the potential to hurt him, to have him be seen in a way that he hasn't been seen in a long time. Every character has, has something about them that they're, they're trying to fill, you know, Levi, uh, who's again, uh, Amy's ex-husband who she still has this connection with. He fills it with drugs, you know, he, mm-hmm. and, and alcohol and, and not really having much of a mission, but just kind of letting, the pain go away and taking it easy, you know, and the mom we learn has kind of this other relationship with the emptiness in her life after we learn that her husband, Laura's, Laura Dern's father, uh, or I guess Amy Jellicoe's father, uh, committed suicide after some business stuff went wrong and how she's kind of accepted this very lonely, quiet life and how there's a hole there that she has decided it's too painful to try and fill. And it, Almost every character gets some probing of that. And that's one of the things that's really moving about the show. Yeah, there's a whole episode devoted to the mother. And Mike White talks about that in his little video at the end of the episode about being able to explore some of these other characters. Diane Ladd is quite remarkable in this series. She plays the mother. And, you know, she's so, as Mike White said, she's so shut down. Right. So her answer to missing something in her life is to fill it with gardening. She produces these fantastic roses. She has these fake swans that swim around in her in her pool. She's kind of an odd person. You know, she's just very shut down, very closed. Like when, when Amy shows up after she's been away in Hawaii for two weeks, she hugs her mom and says, you know, it's so good to see you. And her mother says, why? <laughs> it's, so, it's so perfect for, for her character. But yeah, to go back to the Mike White character, Tyler, once he lets in that other person and that other person too becomes very vulnerable. And she kind of at the very beginning of that relationship says, you know, I I just don't have time to be screwed around. If you're if you're going to be an asshole, let's just not do this. And so it just gives you such a sense of what she's been through before. 
And then the two of them do actually have a fairly major collision early in their relationship that does test their relationship. So yeah, they, I mean, Mike White has really explored some, some interesting things in this show. The, the show doesn't make it easy for anyone, but I was grateful that we do get a, a last glimpse of those two characters talking, Tyler, and um, I believe her name is Eileen, the, the assistant to the CEO, kind of having this conversation and perhaps on the way to patching it up after they do have that collision that you spoke of where he kind of betrays her, her trust as part of Amy's, her mission. And it's another example of kind of a, a casualty in this being an agent of change and this search for enlightenment. Yeah, this idea about how you change things. Do you work from within or do you just burn the whole thing down? And Amy obviously has not arrived at a clear decision about that. And it really comes to the fore in the second season where at first she's she's enamored with the idea of becoming a whistleblower. And so she uh, works very hard to get a reporter interested in this story. And um, I can't remember who plays him. He's also a really good actor and interesting character. Do you remember who plays him? Yeah, it's, it's Dirt. I don't know how you say the first name, Dermot or, or Dermo. Oh yeah, that's it. Mulroney. And he's kind of a, a comedy TV show veteran. He, he pops up on all these different things. Yeah. I recognized him when he, when he showed up Yeah, Dermot Mulroney, something like that. So he, he's the real deal, right? So he's a big time reporter and it, when Amy brings her, ha ha, you know, gotcha things, he's like, Meh. you know, I could do with some bigger stuff than this. And so he, then he kind of takes over her mission and he's more of a burn it all down kind of person. And so Amy gets swept up in this thing. And I'll give a little bit away here. She actually has a chance to maybe come back into the company and become more of a change agent from the inside. So she has a some conversations, some dialogue with the CEO where it looks like that might be a possibility. And then it's clear after what has happened, there's no way for her to come back. And she's now in this, yeah, burn it all down position. And you'd mentioned that this made you think about some things happening in the you know, in our current times with protests and so forth. So what what parallels do you draw to now? Yeah, I do want to talk more about some of the things you just said, because I think it, it opens up some of the really interesting stuff that this show does. But this in particular, like felt like headlines, Rob, from the headlines of today, particularly if you're following following politics. So now that the I'm not sure when this will be posted, but it's we're recording right now on Friday, November 13th, and the election has fairly definitively been called for Joe Biden, and the Democrats probably did not win the Senate, although there's a runoff in Georgia to find out in January, and they did win the House, but not by as much as some of the polls said they were going to. Mm-hmm. And so if you're keeping up with some of the Capitol Hill headlines and not really gossip, but just what's what are people talking about? A lot of the people on the the side of the Democrats are, we basically went with the most moderate, most centrist message possible, and we kind of got a a moderate victory. You know, we didn't get a sweeping victory that we were hoped for. And Mm -hmm. so there's all this dialogue about, do you do the burn it all down approach? Do you embrace progressivism? 
uh, leftism, socialism as much as you can to kind of appeal to maybe a different base and a different audience? Or do you try to broaden the appeal, try to do something that's incrementally more moderate, something that's that will inch you towards your po- your policy goals as opposed to swinging all, all the way over there. I found that really fascinating. It's far from the only parallel that you you can read in the current headlines with with what's going on. I mean, anything with the press in today's kind of really jaded, intense uh, environment with the media. You know, everything about the whistleblower there felt really resonant with today. And the stuff about Cogentiva, this data mining operation that then weaponizes it against the people. I mean, they, this was written in 2011 and it could have been written in 2020 for sure. Yeah. The surveillance that, that is implied and that, that they, that Dougie eventually just exposes quite openly to her. Oh yeah. You know, we, we're going to use this information to fire people. Right. Yeah. And how, I mean, you see that in parallels with what people say, Facebook and Google and Twitter are doing to kind of manipulate the, the media, the information that people consume. And the way they do that is by collecting and processing. And as I said, sort of weaponizing this massive amount of information about how people behave. So I found that extremely resonant with the headlines of today. Yeah. And I think you're right. There's something there's something a little bit different about Amy. So, so she comes in, right? She's, uh, she comes into work one morning and she's passed a strike, a worker's strike. And so this, you know, fires her up. She's like, yeah, workers unite, you know, little people. But it is sort of unclear how much she really believes in that. And then what really struck me is she says to Tyler across their desk, she said, you know, I, I watched this strike. I came across this strike this morning. And she said, it looked like they were having fun. <laughs> it's like, Amy, <laughs> you're getting into this for the wrong reasons. I was thinking of that later when she has, the, you know, kind of the back and forth with the reporter where, you know, she comes to him with these things she thinks are so big, you know, these signs of immoral behavior, unethical behavior. And he's like, meh, you know, small potatoes. Yeah, it's a bad thing. But he's really pushing, right? He He's much more driven. He wants front page. He wants criminal activities. You know, he, he wants a real expose. And so it's clear then that Amy, it's, it's a little bit like your conversation amongst the Democrats. You know, he, he's really out for blood. And she's more, you know, she just wants to have fun, right? She just wants the solidarity. And yeah, it, it, they're, they're coming at it from different places. Yeah. He's very interesting character. One thing that I noticed this time around that I didn't feel as strongly last time I watched it is that he is quite manipulative of Amy in many ways, Mm -hmm. um, many ways. And there's something about the way that he kind of just hand waves away what Amy reveals and we are led to believe is like genuinely horrifying behavior by the this corporation uh, kickbacks and all this just real messy financial stuff that's hurting the environment, their line and like stuff that is really horrifying and bad. And he just kind of hand waves it because he wants the juicy story, the one that'll get you headlines, the one that'll get you the Pulitzer. So, yeah, you know, it, it is clear that he is authentically 
interested in change. But again, there's also an angle where he's also just playing his own role too. And he wants to be the, the hotshot reporter who breaks the, the big story with government tie-ins and stuff. It's to some extent, he cares about the morals, but he also is only partially engaged with them or, or can't, there's more to it there, I guess. That's interesting. It's almost as though her motivations are more pure. I mean, it's true. She wants, she wants solidarity. She wants purpose. But he is, as you say, he is pretty manipulative. He's a harder character. And he is kind of out for himself, right? I mean, it's, it's clear from the beginning that he's big. He's the real deal. You know, he's a big time reporter. I think he's already won a Pulitzer. And yeah, he wants another one. So yeah, he, the colliding of those two wor- worlds is somewhat similar to some of the conversations we're hearing now in politics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Amy, I mean, you, I think you said it correctly that she really gets swept up in, in the way the world that he's showing her about how you, you get awards and you go to these wine and dines of mm-hmm. Amnesty International, you know, celebrities almost who are trying to change the world and, it kind of disconnects her. It gives her a narrative in her head, which is something that she is always big for her. Like from the beginning, she imagines herself in the story as an agent of change. And that's part of what drives her as opposed to the actual substance of being an agent of change. But yeah, when she, she gets a taste of of this, uh, this other world that this reporter is a part of, she in some ways gets disconnected with the nitty gritty of it. And we see that flipped around when Basically, Tyler, to, to save Amy and to save everything from kind of blowing up, essentially sacrifices another worker, frames another worker who, from everything we've seen, is nice and hardworking. Um, Omar, played by the comedian Jason Mansukas, and he gets fired because of the, the data breach that Amy and Tyler were actually responsible for. So that kind of grounds her again. Yeah, it just reminds me of so much of so much that happens in this show, you know, A leads to B leads to C. And then also how great the character, how great the actors are and the characters, right? So at first that whole mob down there, all of those people who've had various run-ins with HR. And so they're all stuck down there in level H. And one of them is Omar and how they really grow and become, you know, they really blossom and become these full people. And Omar is one of those, right? So you get to learn a lot more. At first, he just seems like, yeah, one of that group of of computers and freaks down there. And then after this, <laughs> this thing happens, so he insults Tyler. He is very suspicious of what's happening between Amy and Tyler. And so he corners them in the kitchen and is like, hey, what's going on with you two? And then he really insults Tyler. And Tyler, who's always seemed like kind of a passive character, does not take well to that. And so he wreaks his revenge upon poor Omar. And yeah, we so we're in this situation as the audience where it's bad when Omar insults Tyler in a very personal way. But then we get to see what happened to Omar. And it's like, well, that's not fair. So yeah, it, the show is really great, I think, at showing us what happens step by step when when the action is is put into play. And then also kind of our shifting loyalties as we watch what happens to these different characters. 
another good example of the A leads to B leads to C is bringing back something you brought up a few minutes ago when Tyler meets, well, the reason that Tyler introduces himself to Eileen, who he ends up getting this strong connection with, the reason that he first introduced himself is because Amy and, and Tyler and eventually Dougie want some way to kind of get in to the CEO's office. And Tyler notes that he always sees the CEO's assistant at the gym mm -hmm. and he strikes up a conversation with her. Well, when they build that connection, then the, the assistant says, Hey, I know Amy who she's met at that point. I know Amy is really passionate about making the company more ethical and, and doing things more correctly. Let me arrange this meeting with the CEO. And then they, she has that meeting with the CEO and the CEO offers Amy just what absolutely would have been her dream job at the start of the show. This chance, this powerful position to really make meaningful change at the company. But she can't do it because she's already... It's too late. <laughs> yeah, she's already in on the, the whistleblowing. And the, the funny thing is that she finally got the chance to do the thing she initially wanted only because of the dominoes that fell down from her trying to do this big whistleblowing operation. It's, it's characteristic of a number of things in this show that somehow, you know, people go about something in such a bamboozled and backwards way. And yet somehow it all turns around so that, yeah, ironically that thing does happen, but but now it's not quite what the people wanted. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just, it, yeah, it's very entertaining for the audience to, to see these things play themselves out. Yeah, it's, it's really well written. And it's, it's interesting that the first season, I, I was rewatching it this time, and I was struck how there's not very much plot in the first season. Isn't that it's, interesting? Yeah. But it lays all this groundwork for season two, which really has a lot of narrative momentum. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting, too, because usually you see the opposite, that the first season is the plot, right? Like we had mm -hmm. that part figured out. And if there's a second season, sometimes that's where it gets a little bit in the weeds, where they're kind of trying to make a season out of nothing. This one was just the opposite. It was very fascinating to watch that. I did really admire the way the first season, it really hit its stride around the, a few episodes in. And then each episode really takes its time to think through some perspective or some theme or some angle. And it, it again, it really builds a backbone for the show of like all of these things that it's kind of concerned about in different ways that Amy is kind of interlocked into these things and these people, how they relate to these themes. And then again, it all comes spiraling out of control in the second season. In your notes, you've got this comment here, uh, only hope hurts. Is that a phrase from the show? Yeah, I was. I wrote it down as it was happening. It's possible that I, I got the transcription wrong. It might just be paraphrased. But mm -hmm. th this idea, and this goes back to what we were talking about with Tyler. I think this is actually from one of his monologues in that episode, The Ghost is Seen, where the the only thing, you know, once you've kind of, uh, accepted, you found your rhythm, and it's not necessarily something where you have a mission. So, you know, Amy has a mission, but a lot of the characters here at least start out by not having a mission. They're, they're, they're just living their lives. And for Tyler in particular, who's very lonely, the hope of a mission, the hope of change mm -hmm. is, is the thing that can actually hurt you at that mm -hmm. point. Because if you've already come to grips with a certain specific lot in life, 
the prospect of that changing, even for the better, even if it's, you know, a good prospect could actually be dangerous. It's, it's this irony and this double-edged sword and this two sides of the same coin that we've been talking about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much true. I think for Tyler, that idea of raising a specter that there might be more is actually kind of scary. And it's one of the things that I liked about the show, I think especially because it's set in Riverside, you know, because we all have these preconceived notions about what life in Riverside would be like, this sort of nothing life. There's nothing glamorous there, exciting. And I think of all the many, many people who just go to work every day, right? And I think sometimes we forget that those are real humans in there with aspirations and and hope. And, you know, I think sometimes we're kind of dismissive of people and we forget how complicated humans are. It was one of the things that I really loved about this show was that it exposed the complexity inside people that you may work next to day after day after day, nine to five, and know very little about. And yet the reality is they probably have a very active inner life and that their lives are extremely precious to them. So yeah, I I like that kind of more open part of the show. It's very embracing, right? Definitely, yeah. The biggest one we get on seeing a character who seems very kind of just in their rhythms and doesn't really seem to have much of an internal life at first is the mom character you mentioned Mm. how she she has a lot of difficulty confronting even talking about those things you know engaging with it at all but we really get in the episode from her perspective we learn a lot more about her life a lot more about her connection to amy and her history and one touch that you really see in that episode but I noticed a lot is they've decorated the house with pictures of Laura Dern and Diane Ladd, who are again, real life child and parent uh-huh. and hung that up on the set. And it's, it's those, the actual, I'm, I'm assuming it's their actual pictures. Uh-huh. Of, it seems uh, like when they were little, when, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. when she was little. Another good example of a character that we, we get to kind of learn the inner life of just a little bit more, not nearly to the same level of depth is the coworker, Connie. Oh, yes, kind of, Connie. <laughs> yeah. she, she's kind of depicted as this very conservative, uh, almost prudish woman who is very off put by Dougie and anything that's kind of outlandish or crude that anyone around them is doing, which is Amy is doing some of that. And certainly Dougie is doing some of that. And then we come to learn that she <laughs> has a lot of deep, thoughtful stuff she does, and she ends up not being a character of scorn by the end. She's She ends up being appreciative of the way that Amy stuck up for herself and stuck up for other people in like a sort of fundamentally Christian way, and she says that she'll pray for Amy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just another example of a character who we get kind of a, a deeper, more nuanced, ultimately sympathetic, but certainly not fully uh, black or white portrait of as the show goes along. Along these lines about revealing the characters to us, I want to talk about this scene and see if it had the impact on you that it did on me. So there's a scene when Levi comes to the house. And I think we've already been clued in that there's considerable friction between Levi and um, Amy's mother because 
Amy's mother always disapproved of Levi, but especially once he started using a lot of drugs. And there's a scene where they confront each other in the kitchen. And I felt like that scene went from zero to a hundred in just a, a nanosecond. And I was so riveted by their interactions for a couple of reasons. It's very interesting to see two very powerful actors go at each other the way they did. And I wondered how much of that had been planned and how much of it was spontaneous, that they they really had a lot to unpack on each other right there and load on each other right there. And also the message that they're sending to each other, I found so moving and that is that they're both accusing each other of not having taken care of Amy. And at this point, you know, Amy has revealed herself to be pretty flawed. But to me, that that expression of love that they have, you know, you didn't love her enough. You didn't take care of her. And that they're so at each other's throat. I was so amazed at that scene. Did it make any impression on you or was that just me? No question. That's a, it's a phenomenal, very memorable scene. As you said, very explosive. Oh, it, interesting. It, it pays off on these hints that we had received up until that point that, you know, Amy's mom didn't like Levi and that Levi's resented Amy's mom to some extent. Yeah. It's, uh, as you said, it, it, it is an expression of love, but it also in this, again, this theme of the show, how there's a second side to everything. It also just shows from their perspective how they centered the narrative around themselves and not around Amy. It's the exact, thing that it, exact mm-hmm. same thing that Amy does that's so uncomfortable all the time as she imagines herself in this story and has these uncomfortable encounters as a result. But here we see they also imagine themselves as the protagonist, the one, you know, who is in the right yeah. and, and fail to really get the vision of what other people's lives are like or how other people, you know, this, the way that they're interconnected. It, it's a powerful scene for sure. Yeah. Very revealing. But I was so touched uh, by that, how, and I suspect this happens in real life, right? That, that people, accuse each other of something. And really what they're trying to say is you didn't love enough. You know, that's a really powerful message to say to someone. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it also reveals for sure that they, the deep ways that they both care about Amy, Mm -hmm. about Laura Dern's character and how fragile and complex a human, but particularly the character we see in Amy can be. That was part one of our two episodes on the HBO show Enlightened. So tune in next week for the second part. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. Music.